Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Welcome to All Things Local on Full Service Radio. Broadcasting live from the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I am your host, Olubumi Bakari, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Casey Danielson. Just to tell you a little bit uh, about myself, I am a native Washingtonian. I am fourth generation Washingtonian. Uh, My family is from the Anacostia section of Washington, D.C. I personally grew up in Northeast D.C. in a place called Fort Lincoln. educated DC public schools went to UDC so I am a Washingtonian through and through um Casey do you want to tell the folks about yourself well um my name is Casey Danielson um I'm a library associate working at the studio lab in uh Shepherd Park so uh, the studio lab, which was housed at Martin Luther King Library, uh, once King closed for the three-year modernization, we moved sort of to a satellite location up in Northwest. Um, and uh, we're excited for when the new building opens. Um, so I came down to the area in 97, started uh, undergrad at University of Maryland, uh, started working at the library in 2001. A very long time ago. It feels, mm-hmm. uh, it makes me feel old. Um, and f- played in a bunch of bands, mixed and made some records, and um, sort of more recently transitioned into film and filmmaking and, and visual stuff like that, but still doing music and, and working on some records. Um, so we do some filmmaking. Uh, tutorial type classes and Photoshop classes, audio classes up at the studio lab. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at. Oh yeah, and just to like to kind of clarify, because we're mm-hmm. both members of the studio lab, right. and so you ended up going to Shepherd Park. Yeah, and I ended up going to. Well, I got bounced around a bit, but now <laughs> I'm at the Shaw Neighborhood uh, Library. And so, yeah, so kind of doing this radio program is is kind of up our alley a little bit because we were both interested in communications. We're both interested in filmmaking, so forth and so on. Um, So just to mention, this is a part of this is a joint collaboration between the D.C. Public Library, uh, the Studio Lab and the Line Hotel and Full Service Radio. Yeah, correct. correct. And and we'll be doing. we, we air live <clears throat> with weekly shows um, and uh, hold on. so this show airs live um, 
every Tuesday and is uh, archived on fullserviceradio.org. Um, it's useful to know. Um, and uh, you want to talk about this week's guest? Well, first, uh, so we'll be doing like different segments of uh, DC, for DC Public Radio. And the segment that I'll be hosting is called All Things Local. And I wanted to kind of focus on folks who are native Washingtonians, not folks who just came in like five years ago, but folks who have lived in the city 25 years plus, you know, um, people who have lived in communities whose families have been here for years. And um, as a result, the city is changing. And I kind of wanted to let these let folks tell their stories, you know, um, before they disappear, before it's too late. It's always great to have folks tell their own stories. Yeah, and in the, on the last episode, we talked about um, the importance of oral histories. Um, so as sort of related to that, gathering stories of people who um, won't be able to share those stories forever. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's kind of what you're talking about. In each of the, uh, each of the uh, episodes, um, episodes isn't the right word, but e- each, of, each of these programs, segments. each of these segments, uh, weekly segments, uh, having different hosts will be on different topics. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of jumps around depending on our interests. Mm-hmm. And so your passion really is about D.C. history. D.C. history, D.C. culture. And I think the tie into the public library is we come across people from all walks of life, all socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, and the library just isn't, you know, you check out a book and you you know, you're reading a book. There's there's all sorts of things to do in the library now. You're using the internet. You're doing historical research. You have access to databases where you can actually um, do your family research. Um, so I'm going to segue into um, this week's guest. And of course, since this is all things local, um, I invited my guest, Diane Dale, to be here today because she is from the Anacostia community. Um, and she she wrote this beautiful coffee table book. It's called The Village That Shaped Us. It's a look at Washington, D.C.'s Anacostia community. Uh, so welcome, Diane Dale. Thank you for having me. So, Ms. Dale, why did you write this book? There are a lot of reasons that that I wrote it, uh, I started out just doing oral histories and decided that I could put some pictures with them and that I had some other documentation. My family's been in Anacostia since the late 1800s. Um, and I come from a family of pack rats and they didn't throw anything away. So I had a lot of material that I could go through. Um, but more importantly, the reputation that Anacostia suffers uh, is not the community that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And it was a matter of setting the record straight. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the fact that our communities are disappearing because of um, development, Gentrification, if you want to call it that, um, it it just 
seemed that if we don't begin to talk about our history, if we don't begin, we being black people, don't begin to talk about our history, record our history, uh, it's going to be gone. And and the, the 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 folks that I grew up around, um, I, I say I, I call the book um, the village that shaped us because Anacostia was like a village. Um, everybody knew everybody. Um, everybody looked out for the children. It was. Um, um, a very support, supportive um, place to to be from, and um, the people who were influential in the lives of of my peers um, didn't have anybody to to kind of um, tell their story. And these were, were people who did significant things with no one to um, really understand their role and how things worked in the community and in the black community, particularly the principals and the shop owners and all the, the um, ministers and the teachers and all these folks. They shaped us and they, they uh, brought us around to being responsible adults. And... It, that was typical of, of our communities across the country. And they all have disappeared, are disappearing, because nobody's talking about them. When in 1954 the desegregation ruling came down, we left those communities. And so did the whites who lived around those communities. So our communities began to disintegrate for, for again, a lot of different reasons. Abandonment and highways. When the 55 um, U.S. highway, not the U.S., interstate highway um, ruling came out in 55, they came. If you travel across the country, when you see a sign that says Martin Luther King Highway or Martin Luther King Avenue or Martin Luther King Street or whatever, you're in a black neighborhood. Those, those highways came straight through all black communities all across the country. Mm-hmm. And so they served to divide and destroy where we used to live and where we um, uh, made our mark as a people. And so these, these folks who lived in those communities who straddled segregation and desegregation, and I was one of them, um, have a story to tell, but nobody's out there. Nobody's uh, listening, per se, because, uh, you know, all of a sudden, who cares about history anymore? So, um, let's go go back a bit. Um, For folks who may be listening um, across the country, around the world, can you kind of tell us in words where Anacostia is located? Can you kind of um, paint a picture of it? All right. Anacostia. In, in, okay, I'm going to take you back to 1867. Okay. In, um, after, after the Civil War, the, the Freedmen's, Bureau, Freedmen's Bureau was created to help resettle those persons, slaves, um, ex-slaves, um, and, and also 
some whites um, who had been displaced as a result of the war. The, the Freedmen's Bureau um, had as its mission to provide housing, education, um, health care, even some legal services for um, blacks and, and their communities. And so in 1867, the Freedmen's Bureau purchased a 375-acre farm, which was just adjacent to St. Elizabeth. St. Elizabeth was, uh, is, um, or, or was the U.S. insane asylum, and it was created in 1855. And just to the north of St. Elizabeth was this 375-acre farm. And it was purchased by the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, through the Freedmen's Bureau, by Oliver Otis Howard, who eventually became the president of Howard University, which was also created in 1867. And um, so this, this farm was then uh, parceled out to um, freedmen and ex-slaves and um, since 1867 the street grid is the same mm-hmm. uh, a lot is different now the, uh, as I said before and, and, uh, and we were sandwiched between St. Elizabeth and two white communities so we had this little um, so, what are strip. the names of the, the the white communities? The white it, it, first, there's there's uh, Saint Elizabeth, uh, eighteen fifty five, mm-hmm. and it Saint Elizabeth was um, was established uh, on a hillside that overlooks the city of Washington, looks across the Anacostia River, mm-hmm. um, at the Navy Yard. The Navy Yard is a historic site as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it was that that site was selected by Dorothea Dix um, because of the ther- because the views from the the hillsides were considered therapeutic. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. When we were doing some research uh, before uh, coming here, if you look at the maps, the really old maps, St. Elizabeth is always just called uh, Lunatic Asylum. Well, yeah, really. on, yeah <laughs> on the really old maps, there's like, so you have the Anacostia River bounding Anacostia, uh, or Uniontown, I think it was called yes. at that time, uh, on sort of going southwest to northeast on the side of it, and then bounded on the bottom left is Lunatic Asylum. <laughs> and then you have, you know, you see the berry farms all split up into the, it was 432 separate pieces I think something like that something um, like that yeah they were they, it was divided into to one acre lots so you had in 1867 black people who were able to own one acre of land they they hired St. Elizabeth again on, on some of the maps it was called the um, U.S. Insane Asylum I haven't seen once it said lunatic asylum mm-hmm. be interested in seeing those yeah. um, so it, that's 1855 in 1854 however just to the north on the other side of the, the Barry farm. It was a, a farm that was owned by a family named Barry. And just to the north of that was um, uh, Uniontown, which was developed in 1854 for 
primarily for those persons who were working at the Navy Yard. The Navy Yard was one of the largest employers during that period of time. Um, and Uniontown uh, was white only. Uniontown was white. There, there was, there was a, a covenant against uh, sales to blacks. And um, so that was 54, and then San Bispus was 55, and then in 67, the Berry Farm purchase was made and, um, and settled by blacks and their families. Now, just on the other side, to the south of San Elizabeth, was, was a community also that was developed around 1900 called Congress Heights, and that was white. So we were sandwiched between San Elizabeth and two white communities. And... Um, um, we did okay there. We we knew our boundaries and we kind of stayed. We knew where to go and where not to go. And yeah. and, and now Frederick Douglass, he kind of broke the barrier when he, he moved in. Frederick yeah. Douglass um, came to live east of the Anacostia River 10 years after the development of the Freedman's Village, and we call it a Freedman's Village. Uh, that was Barry Farm. He was able to purchase the home of the uh, developer of Uniontown, um, Mr. Van Hook. Um, the sales didn't go as well as he anticipated that they would, and so he eventually went bankrupt. And so um, his house went on the market, and Frederick Douglass was able to purchase it. But he purchased it um, through the same um, agent. There was a John Elvins was a, a local merchant, and he was a member of a committee that was uh, formed to influence um, Oliver Otis Howard, General Howard. He was a general in the in the Civil War, um, to influence him to purchase the the Berry Farm, and. Um, so he was one. He was also uh, the blind, if you want to call it that, that helped Frederick Douglass to purchase um, Van Hook's mansion. He wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise. So and he had someone per- kind of purchase it for him, or well, he was or someone else was the face. Yes, and then, yes, and okay. such was the case with the Barry Farm purchase, mm-hmm. um, because if they had known that they they were going to have. 400 families there, they might not have done it. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Now, for you, let's go back to your book. Uh, what is the period that um, your book um, focuses on? Like, what's, what's the time period, you would say? Well, I, I kind of give a little overview of, of the origins of the communities east of the river. Um, First of all, the, the area along the eastern seaboard was a trade route for Indian uh, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And so the Anacostia community was called Nacotchtank because when uh, Captain Smith, John Smith, sailed up the um, Potomac and the Anacostia, he discovered that um, that there were Indians there, Native Americans there. And uh, of course he claimed all he saw in the name of the king. And so in, in about a, a year or so later, 
um, the Indians were gone, Native Americans were gone, and, and whites had settled there. But this was a trade route that, mm-hmm. that was tra- uh, traveled by um, Native Americans who uh, migrated up and down the East Coast. So the Indians were there, Native Americans were there first. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1608, um, it was claimed for the King of England. And uh, then, um, let's see. I, I take you from there, kind of, kind of an overview. I take you from there, and, and so you give like the backstory, the yes, history of the area, of the area, and yeah. then you bring it forward bring to it the forward. community that you knew. Yes, okay. um, and and I, I do want to say this: I, we didn't know all this history growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, we just knew that it was an old community because mm-hmm. somebody's grandmother lived down the street in a house that she was born in, so you knew it was old. Um, and it kind of grounded you. You had a, um, you were just in it, you know, and and it, uh, it was yours. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is that? Because like my grandmother's ninety six. She does not like talking about the past, and much of the information that I found out, particularly about my family, within the Hillsdale community was through research, was through newspapers. But this is not anything that, you know, and I had been asking folks about, you know, the history, the folks in this community, but either they just did not know, and in my grandmother's case, she just did not want to talk about it. So why is that? Why do you feel like the generation that preceded you did not want to talk about, you know, this history? I haven't I haven't had that experience. Most of the people I know want to talk about it hmm. because it was such a great place. It it um I, I think they understood the I think they underst- understood um that in retrospect they understood what a great place it was and how um, unique it was. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of us um, who, if you get us in the same room, Mm -hmm. the conversation is always about growing up in in Anacostia and Barry Holmes. And and you call names of people who um, were influential in the lives of of those of us who grew up over there, so I I don't I I think I think if they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it because it changed and became something else, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it has a reputation that um, you wouldn't want uh, folks to pass on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's talk about that a bit. Um, are there any like prominent individuals who resided in the Anacostia community besides Frederick Douglass, um, or folks who have come out of that community? Yeah. Okay, there there are um, t- today 
I call them centennial churches, but, but there are still churches that all right, Allen Allen Chapel AME Church was established in 1850. Mm-hmm. It sits in roughly the same location that it was in back then mm-hmm. on Alabama Avenue. There's this little white church, um, and then they they built a new church. Uh, President Obama and his family visited that church for Easter mm-hmm. service the first year of his presidency. Um, that must have been a, a a big deal for the community. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it was. I I don't know how many folks really knew that he was kind. I didn't know. If I had known, I would have gone to church that day. <laughs> um, but um, th- there are about eight churches mm-hmm. that were established between 1850 and um, 1921 that are still there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many how many communities can say that. Um, there was a store on every corner. Back um, there, there was a time when um, down below Mississippi Avenue, you had farmland down there. And of course, everybody farmed. Um, you know, you had you had folks who had fruit trees, and and um, you had enough land that you could grow your own crops if you wanted to. And um, but they had um, they grew flowers down there, and 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 German families were um, some of those families that um, came in and established grocery stores on the corner, uh, just about everywhere. And um, so you had you had there's uh, there's somebody that I that I got some pictures from from the book who didn't live. Uh, in Anacostia, he came to Anacostia late, and he, when he did finally come there to live with his his family, they moved them from Southwest to um, Barry Farms. He was amazed at the number of black businesses and black establishments that were there. He hadn't seen that many black people who had their own businesses and things uh, then. Um, so I don't, I don't know whether I'm answering your question or not. It just, um, they're, they're, uh, there was a lot of pride there. The schools, there was one, there were two schools, Bernie Elementary and Garfield. Bernie Elementary was, um, it became Bernie, but it started out as the Howard School it just after the community was developed. Um, it came with Allen Chapel Church. Was the the Freedmen's Bureau, and, and forgive me if I'm jumping around, but it, uh, it's popping around in my head. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau established many of the HBCUs um, and was um, in partnership with many um, Missionary societies. Missionary societies, of course, um, were full of abolitionists, and missionary societies um, wanted to do two things. They wanted to teach, and they wanted to build churches. And so uh, when Allen Chapel was established, it, it was established through, through a missionary society, and they also built a school. This was... Um, if you come across the, the 11th Street Bridge, which is 
I call it now a monstrosity. Uh, just a lot of concrete ribbons running across the river that kind of block the view and make you feel like you're boxed in over there anymore. Used to The views from Anacostia used to be lovely, but... And 295 uh, didn't help. No, 295, um, Sutton Parkway yeah. split the community. So there were a lot of things that happened that um, uh, interfered with the integrity of, of the community. Um, um, let's, not to interrupt you. Oh, uh, go right ahead. Yes, I'm <laughs> but uh, I want to talk about um, a person that I, you have a picture of him in your book, um, Solomon Brown. Can you talk a little bit about him? Solomon Brown was one of the early, he was on that committee with uh, Elvins, mm-hmm. uh, John R. Elvins. And, um, and who is Elvins? John R. Elvins was a businessman from, from Southeast, and he was one of those who prevailed upon um, General Howard to mm-hmm. purchase the Barry Farm uh, to provide this housing. Um, and land opportunity, land owning opportunity for freemen and ex-slaves. Now, the um, freemen and ex-slaves were um, hired to clear the land because this was farmland, was also a lot of uh, trees and things. Mm-hmm. And so they were hired to clear the land and the money from their wages was used to offset the debt of the land purchase. Um, Solomon Brown was a self-taught man. He worked for the Smithsonian Institution, I think it was 54 years. Um, At a time when, when blacks Americans no, were not working. Were, were not uh, <laughs> doing that kind of work. He was um, uh, a self-taught scientist. He lectured, um, but... Um, as as was the case, he was not given the title nor the salary commensurate with the work that he did. My great-great-grandfather uh, was the same thing. He came to Anacostia, came, brought his family to Anacostia in around 1892. And he was from, they were from Mississippi. He took an exam, civil service exam in, in Mississippi. He was called to come to D.C. to work at the Pension Bureau, which is now the Building Museum at 5th and E Streets Northwest. He walked there from Anacostia every day. Um, he was hired as a clerk, and when he got to Washington and they saw him, they gave him the title of and the pay of messenger, and that was typical. Um, most blacks who would have been professionals were given the title of messenger and paid at that rate. Um, but he did the work for um, which he was called to Washington to do. Of course, it's, you know you don't do anything about it because you can't. You just work, go to work. So Solomon Brown. Um, um, lived on Elvin's Road, and he was elected to the city council. Um, in now there were the seventies. There were two councils, correct? There was there was a council for African Americans, and then 
one for the white community or were they? I don't think so. They were all together? I think he was, yeah, because I think he was voted in by blacks and whites. Okay. And um, he lobbied for better pay for teachers and, 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 and blacks in particular. He, um, as I said before, was um, instrumental in persuading through this um, committee, persuading Howard to purchase the Berry Farm. He was quite prominent in his time. Okay. Let's bring it forward a bit. Um, you and I had a conversation um, and you were talking about the Carver Theater, and you you um, talk a little bit about that. Um, what did the Carver Theater mean to this community? I, I, what you have to understand is Washington was very much a segregated town, and um, there were uh, movies for whites and movies for blacks, and schools for whites and schools for blacks, and so there was no commingling, no intermingling. And um, so if you wanted to go to the movie, you, we went up to U Street because that's where the movies were. You could go over to H Street. There were movies for blacks on H. The Atlas Theater was a movie for blacks on H Street. And there was a movie, The Strand, was on, I think, um, Dean Minnesota. Avenue. Uh, um, Dean Wood. Yeah. Um, and so there were, there were movies that we could go to, but we didn't have one. Um, east of the river um, there were a lot of white movies in the Anacostia movie and Naylor, the Congress Heights they all had movies and so eventually um, they built the Carver Theater down on, on Nichols Avenue, Martin Luther King Avenue and so we could just walk down the street and go to the movies and um, they had the, the latest movies Showboat, all those movies were there and um, so we and this was a, this was a dress up affair. Like no, you, you you dressed up to go to U Street. Oh, you dressed up yeah, to go to U Street, but, but and you could dress well. Most of the time, if you if you had a date to go to the movies, you did dress up regardless of where it was. So, but for the most part, that was kind of, you know, a movie we didn't dress up to go there necessarily. So, what um, was the difference between going to U Street and then staying within? Well, the U Street community? was a black mecca kind of place. It was the place where. Um, uh, Duke Ellington, all those folks. Um, um, it, it just, it just was the destination. And so, if you if you went to the movie um, on U Street, the Booker T, the Lincoln, the um, the Lincoln, the Republic, the Booker T were the three black movies on U Street, and they were. Um, kind of fancy and so you, you dressed up to go to the movies there um, so e eventually the when when again when desegregation um, came folks could go to the white movies and so you could go to all the all those places that you couldn't go to before desegregation and so our communities and, and businesses suffered um, as a result of that, schools were looted for the best and brightest students, and uh, so institutional memory left when whites left um, institution, they took institutional memory with them, and 
So our community suffered as a result of that. Um, so when, when the, and the, the Carver Theater was one of those that, um, that suffered. And um, then in, in uh, 1900 years after the Berry Farm purchase, the Smithsonian secretary, Estelle and Ripley, um, decided that perhaps since not that many, he didn't see that many black faces on the mall going to the museums, he decided, well, maybe we need to take the museum to the people. And so again, a committee was formed mm -hmm. um, and to uh, influence the Smithsonian to bring the, um, this neighborhood museum. They had put out a call for, uh, to see which community. There were communities that were interested in having this, this neighborhood museum concept Mm -hmm. in their midst mm -hmm. and so there was this community um, uh, this um, committee that was formed in Anacostia consisting of Stanley Anderson was of one of the early families his grandfather was one of the founders of Bethlehem Baptist Church in 1876 so he'd been over there he was uh, worked with the recreation department he started the roving leader program there and um he was one of those who was on this committee. My father, I think, was on the committee. Um, um, there were a few others. I don't remember names, but they uh, prevailed, and the Carver Theater became the Anacostia Neighborhood Museum mm -hmm. on September 15, 1967. They opened the doors. John Kennard, um, who at, at the time was a community organizer, was tapped to be the founding uh, director. Um, Zora Martin Felton was his able assistant. Um, she was the education director there, and um, they broke new ground um, with this with this neighborhood museum concept. They had a community board. It was very much involved in community activity and, and community people. The uh, Anacostia story, which was written by Louise Hutchinson, came out of this um, uh, new museum. And that is, that's where I learned about the community with, with this new book called The Anacostia Story, mm -hmm. 1608 to 1930. Mm -hmm. And I sat down and read that book and I said, oh my goodness, I, this, why didn't somebody tell us all this? Why didn't mm -hmm. I know this? You mm -hmm. know, so you, 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 um, um, you, you, you grow up in a place and you don't really appreciate where you are Although, um, I don't know how I can put this. Um, I have come to appreciate, and folks that I know have come to appreciate much more than when we lived there, where we grew up and the people we grew up around. We have a great appreciation for having had that experience. Um, and uh, it, it is my hope that communities 
like um, Anacostia Berry Farm, Hillsdale. Hillsdale had the first um, um, civic association. It was it was uh, started I think 1898 something. It was one of the oldest in the city. It was my great great grandfather was a member of the yes. civic association. Yes, yes. So um, there there are a lot of names I could call. Um, um, Dr. Qualls was a was a pharmacist. He had a um, a pharmacy down on Nichols Avenue. He had there was a there was a man in the community from from um, he was I think he might have had um, uh, I want to say palsy, but he he wasn't relegated to a, a chair. But he had difficulty navigating. But um, he Dr. Qualls hired him, and at that time he delivered. Um, Prescriptions. Mm. He was always dressed in a tie. He would walk. Everybody knew him in the community. They knew he worked for Doc Qualls. Um, uh, it was that. It was that kind. Of, they they hired from within. It was that kind of community. It, it, again, everybody knew everybody. The the Williams family had a a grocery store on the corner of uh, Talbot Street and, and Martin Luther King. They were a long time family. Um, the the daughter of one of the Williamses married one of my father's best friends. My father and Eddie Berry played baseball together. I think my father was a catcher and Eddie Berry was a pitcher. And they went all over the place playing with the Anacostia ACs. And, and Eddie married the sister of or the daughter of the Williamses who owned the grocery store on uh, on the corner. Um, but but uh, Dr. Qualls was not from the community. I think he was from Pennsylvania, but he, he came and settled there and um, was very much involved in activities at the Douglas home. He organized um, a clean-up, paint-up, fix-up, um, activity at the Douglas home one year where he got kids from the community to come and paint and um, clean up around the grounds. There was a Mrs. Um, uh, Parham who lived at the Douglas home and um, she had Boy Scout troops. She, they used to live in Barry Farms and they hired her to come uh, to be caretaker at the at the Douglas home. Folks from the community lived at the Douglas home after Douglas's death. Um, they lived at the at the Douglas home, and Mrs. Parham uh, would use her Cub Scouts to help uh, take care of the grounds. It was very much our our um, we we kind of owned it, and um, it, it was a very different place to be from. Wow, thank you. You have uh, so many stories um, about this community. And um, just to go back, if folks want to, uh, if they want to check out your book, it's called The Village That Shaped Us, a look at Washington, D.C.'s Anacostia community. Um, it is a collection of, I want to say, like an oral 
history project? It's a compilation of oral histories. Oral histories. Um, and, and just really quick, if you can just, you know, kind of tell me, you know, what would you like to see going forward um, with this community, with the Anacostia community? What would you like to see next? In 30 seconds, if you oh, can. Oh, that's a weighted question. Um, I, it, it's, it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore, um, as we knew it anyway. It's not there anymore, and and it's more of it is disappearing every day. And that that is, if you're out there and you know of of, of a community like this, um, run and catch the people who used to live there and interview them and get their stories and get their stuff. And even if you don't do anything with it, at least you'll have it, and somebody eventually one day can walk up to it and say, "Oh, this is a you know, this is unique find." But we need to document it. We need to document our communities and where we came from. Otherwise, it's going to be gone forever, because nobody knows. This is true. So I just wanted to jump in and just say, um, for our program next week, we're going to have uh, next next Tuesday uh, at two o'clock our. Uh, cohort will will be doing a program a really interesting discussion as part of the studio lab series uh on full service radio and um i'm not allowed to say what it's about he won't let me tell but it's really interesting um and that's it thank you thank you diane um miss dale for coming in today thank and you sharing your story thank you it's always nice to talk about and get this book Yes, the book get this is amazing. book. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from you. Dale they see you on the at street. village2011.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening. And have to mention the theme song is called Utopia. It's by Flash Frequency. Find more of his stuff at flashfrequency.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.